First Corinthians chapter 2. Last time we were together, we uh, finished chapter 1, and uh, Paul was, first of all, introducing himself to the Corinthian church and telling them why he's writing this letter. And keep in mind that the majority of this letter will be in response to some of the questions that the Corinthian church had. Those questions were brought to Paul by the household of Chloe, and uh, he's responding eventually to those questions in this book uh, of First Corinthians. Now, later on, we'll find that Paul had written also another letter to the Corinthian church, which we do not have, probably had been written before this one, uh, but these are the two books that are in our New Testament uh, that are written to the Corinthian church, known as First and Second Corinthians. So we're here in First Corinthians, and uh, again, looking at what Paul had originally started his discussion with in regard to some of the things that were going on in the Corinthian church that were problematic. And he began with the issue of sectarianism, uh, division in the church, because people were saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter. I am of Christ. And then Paul says, look, why are you doing that? Is Christ divided? Uh, did did uh, I baptize all of you? No, he didn't. I thank God he said that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and, and Gaius and a few others in that region. So Paul was saying very, very carefully with regard to the fact that they really didn't want to elevate individuals who were considered leaders in the church. It wasn't about the leader. It was about the message of those who were in leadership. The message was all important. And that's what Paul is going to continue to focus on in chapter 2, talking about wisdom. As he ended last time, uh, we were together. We looked at verse 17 of chapter 1, where it says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So there are two important concepts here that Paul is now going to be talking about. First of all, he's going to be talking about the importance of the cross of Christ. And secondly, he's going to be talking about the importance of wisdom as it relates to the church. There is a wisdom that God endorses. It's known as, to us, godly wisdom, obviously. And then there is a wisdom of the world, which is a wisdom that excludes God. And we certainly know that there are many people who are thinking themselves to be wise in the world today, but it's not a godly wisdom because they are not giving God any glory in their choosing of uh, wisdom that they have endorsed, all of the various uh, philosophies that they embrace, the teachings of the world uh, that exclude God, that try to eliminate any possibility of uh, a God who would be the creator. Uh, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says completely differently with regard to many of these things that the world considers to be wisdom. And so Paul is addressing that already now, almost 2,000 years ago. That was a prevalent issue in the church, and it is still an issue today. At the end of chapter 1, we saw in verse 18, he says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, he's going to continue on in that vein, uh, talking a little bit later on um, 
in chapter 2 about this issue of the cross. And he begins chapter 2 with these words. In verse 1 he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he desired to know nothing among them save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is how Paul ended chapter 1, and he continues in that same vein in chapter 2. And he's saying, look, remember when I came to you, I didn't come with excellence of speech. I wasn't a great orator. And by the way, if you recall in our discussion as, I, as we opened this chapter uh, in or this book of 1 Corinthians, we talked about the fact that the Gentile world in that day was a Hellenistic culture that embraced all kinds of philosophies. And they loved to hear people come and talk about various topics. It wasn't the content necessarily that they were interested in, but the way that it was presented. Flowery speech. They were looking at the oratory skills of the speaker and embraced whatever he had to say based on the fact that he really spoke in a way that captivated his audience. We would call them charismatic individuals today, if you will. But Paul didn't come with that kind of charisma. He says very plainly, I didn't come to you with excellence of speech, he says in verse 1, or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. He used godly wisdom to make those declarations. And then in verse 2, this is a key verse, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul places a great importance on the cross of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, Paul says that, by the cross, Jesus put Satan and his minions to an open shame. The cross is essential to the gospel message. May we never forget that. Without the crown of thorns, there would be no crown of glory. Without the crown of thorns, there would be no crown of gold. The crown of gold will be placed on the king in millennial reign. He will reign for a thousand years on this earth. But he had to first go to the cross. It was there at the cross that he shed his blood for the remission of our sins. It was there at the cross that he said, it is finished. The work that he had come to accomplish was indeed efficaciously accomplished at the cross. On that tree he hung as a man who was cursed. For cursed is a man who hangs on the tree, the Bible tells us. He became sin who knew no sin, and he replaced our sin by nailing it on that cross with the righteousness that only he could have and did have. There is no other way but through the cross that we can receive the salvation that is promised to all of mankind. Jesus made it very, very clear to his disciples that he had to go to the cross. It was absolutely necessary. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that he endured the shame of the cross looking for that which was beyond that cross, 
the glory that would be revealed once again to him. Remember that wonderful prayer in John chapter 17 where he prayed to the Father, Restore to me, he said, O Father, that glory which I had with you from the beginning of time, from the foundations of the earth. He had a glory that he set down and did it willingly so that he could become a man and live a sinless life as a man and then die on that cross. So the cross, again, is central to Paul's message, and it should be very, very central as well to the message that we still have today. The church needs the cross, and there is no way around uh, the concept that is being described here by Paul in terms of the efficacy of this instrument of death. He had to die for the sins of the world. And Paul is reminding the Corinthian church and us that it is so very central to the entire word of God that everything before this cross that Jesus died upon pointed to the cross. Even in the Old Testament scripture in the book of Exodus where we find the Passover, a beautiful picture of the sacrifice that was to be done. And remember when they shed the blood of that sacrifice, they poured the blood on the door uh, lintel and it drained into the basin by the door and then they would take hyssop and they would sprinkle the hyssop at the top of the doorposts and on each of the two sides and indicating the shape of a cross in the doorway of every person who was to be delivered from that Passover uh, night where the angel would come by and if they did not see the blood then that firstborn of that family would be dead by morning. So that's what that was all about, and it is, again, pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. And over and over again, we see in the Old Testament Scripture the cross as imaged for us in the Old Testament Scriptures. Another place you can go to is in the book of Leviticus. And somebody might say, well, why Leviticus? Isn't that just a book of laws and regulations? Yes, it is. But it also describes a means by which they were to travel in the wilderness for those 40 years. And if you look at the description of the alignment of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, each of them in a specific location around the tabernacle, it forms the shape of a cross. And so from God's perspective, looking down on that group of people that he knew as his own and that he loved dearly, and still does love dearly, he looked at the cross moving through that wilderness. Many other places in the Word of God where you can find wonderful illustrations of the cross, but here in the New Testament, it's been revealed to us in a way that the Old Testament did not know. It was just in types and pictures in the Old Testament. Now it has become a reality. Without the cross, we have no hope. And that's what Paul is saying here. I have determined, again in verse 2, not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't want to have to deal with other issues, although he will. I don't want to have to explain to you other things that you need to understand because you've gone astray. And he does do that. But he wants them to understand that the central idea, central thought that he is presenting here in this letter is that the cross of Jesus Christ was absolutely 
essential for their salvation and their sanctification and the redemption that would be theirs eventually at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, he said, I did not come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Now, he certainly had credentials. He could have done that. And if you will turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, we'll take a look at what kind of credentials it was that Paul did indeed have. In chapter 3 of the book of Philippians, beginning with verse 2, uh, four, rather. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul would elsewhere say in Colossians, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And that is something that I believe every Christian should be able to also say, that we are indeed crucified with Christ, crucified on that cross. We died identifying with him on that cross by faith. We are indeed crucified with Christ, yet we live still. We live because he lives. He was raised from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead, in fulfillment of all of what the scriptures had said, we have the assurance also of being raised from the dead. And Paul will also say later in this book of 1 Corinthians, if there is no resurrection, then we Christians are most to be pitied among all men. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. So those are the things that Paul is focusing on in this book, and he elsewhere has spoken on them as well. It's important to understand that Paul has indeed a great emphasis throughout all of his writings on the cross and the power that is from that one element of death. And that's really what it is. It's a instrument of death. And by the way, I mentioned that, that uh, I am crucified with Christ is from Colossians. That's wrong. It's in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, if you want to make a note of that. But back to 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, I determined to know this only. I don't want to know anything more than this, that Jesus Christ was crucified and that you know it well. So that's why he says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. He went to Corinth after having been in Athens, after having been in the northern part of now what is known as Greece, that which was known then as Macedonia. He went to Philippi. He was almost considered to be dead. He was whipped so badly. He went there from there to Thessalonica, was forced out of Thessalonica by the Jews from Philippi. He went onward from there to Berea, and it was there in Berea that there were some Jews at least who actually received the message that Paul had brought, and they were 
so convinced that Paul was speaking some truth that they hadn't ever heard, but they wanted to be absolutely sure, so they went to the Scriptures. They checked it out, and that's something that we all should do. We all should make sure that whatever the pastor might be saying, whatever the evangelist might be saying, that needs to be tested against the Word of God. But Paul was saying, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. In the book of Acts, chapter 18, we find that Paul was indeed fearful, so much so that when he got to Corinth, he was spending a night apparently in fear, and it was then that Jesus came to him in a vision and said, Paul, do not fear. I have many men in this city of Corinth. So Paul was reassured by the promise of Jesus that everything will be okay. They will not harm him. He was very fearful of that, apparently, because he had already gone through so much. He probably was still suffering from some of the pain that must have been the cause of which must have been the beatings that he had received en route to Corinth. But here, in this letter... He's writing it from the city of Ephesus. He's there in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and he's, he's writing to the Corinthian church, again at the request of the household of Chloe, to answer some questions that they had and deal with some issues that they thought were important issues that Paul needed to be addressed. And before, again, he gets to that, he continues to talk about the fact that he came, as he said in verse 1, with godly wisdom, not with the wisdom of the world. He said in verse 4, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So there's power in the wisdom that comes from the Lord. And that's what Paul is going to be conveying to them. This issue of spiritual wisdom. It's something that the world has no understanding of. In fact, remember in verse uh, in chapter 1, Paul talked about the fact that the Hellenists, or the Greeks, the Gentiles, basically thought of the cross as foolishness because why would anybody follow a dead man? They couldn't put it together. They didn't understand it. They couldn't grasp the idea. The concept was far beyond what they could handle. They just did not grasp this simple truth of the gospel message that Christ had to die on the cross, but that he was raised from the dead. Now, the Corinthians struggled with this issue of resurrection. That's why Paul will spend so much time in chapter 15 discussing that. But here, Paul is saying, your faith, there were those in Corinth who did indeed have faith in Christ, but their faith was established by the preaching of the word of God, through godly wisdom, not through flowery speech, not through any kind of persuasive means by which most of the orators would use in that day, but simple word of truth. And that's why we believe that speaking the word of God expositionally as we do, going from verse to verse, is such an important tool that we can use to present the whole counsel of God. And that's why we do what we do here at Calvary Chapel Churches, for the most part. I'm not opposed to teaching topical messages. I'm okay with doing that from time to time, and I'm uh, hopefully going to continue to do that. But most of our emphasis will be on the study of the Word of God, line by line, precept by precept, as it's given to us by Isaiah. 
Spiritual wisdom is what we will be looking at for the remainder of this study tonight. He says in verse 6, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Paul says their wisdom is just simply not going to cut it. It doesn't have the power that the wisdom of God has. And he's going to emphasize that over and over again in this chapter. And it's an important emphasis that we need to make sure we understand. He tells us why here in verse 7. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Remember I had said that in the Old Testament we had pictures and types of the cross, and that's definitely so. Well, it presented a problem for everyone that read the Old Testament, including the Jews, because they only saw a type of what became a reality in the New Testament. So Paul uses a word here in this letter, the mystery of God. And a mystery in the sense that is being used here is actually the unveiling of something that was concealed in previous passages of Scripture, but now is revealed in the New Testament Scriptures. So Paul is using this idea of a mystery as basically a revelation. The book of Revelation that we have, the Apocrypha, that word in the original language is basically an uncovering. And that's what this mystery that Paul is talking about here is indeed all about. Paul is saying, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. It was once hidden, now it's been revealed. And it's been revealed for our benefit. And Paul uses the word glory in that sense. Our benefit uh, that we have is that this wisdom of God has revealed what God had hidden in the past to those who read the word of God. And then he says in verse 8, which, talking about those who were teachers of the Old Testament and even the Greeks, they, none of the rulers of this age knew anything about this wisdom that has been revealed now in this present time. For if they had known he tells us in verse 8, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They wouldn't have crucified Christ if they had known what it was all about. Now that's kind of a contradiction to what I've been saying earlier in a sense because we need the cross of Christ to be fulfilled in order for all of what God had planned with regard to salvation to become a reality. So the cross was necessary but if the rulers had actually paid attention to what the Old Testament scriptures had said, then they would have been able, according to the New Testament scriptures, they would have been able to enter into the kingdom believing in Christ. And if it was done correctly by them, Christ wouldn't have needed to go to the cross. But keep in mind that God knew before the foundation of the world that they would not receive. And because they would not receive, then it is obvious that that cross was indeed necessary. So it's not a contradiction. It's just an affirmation of the fact that everything that God planned had to be done because he knew beforehand what the response of the people of God, the nation of Israel, would be 
to the Christ who would come as a savior of the world. They were expecting a Christ to come as a ruler of the world. He didn't come at that time for that purpose. He came to reach out to Gentiles as well as Jews. And he did so. And that's why you and I are here studying this New Testament Word of God tonight. Because he came for us, for you, for me, for all the Jews, for all the Gentiles. Every individual who has ever lived on the face of the earth has all of them been given the same opportunity to believe in God in the revelation that he provided for them at the time that they were living upon this earth. Now, in the New Testament era, this age of grace, they can only come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Before Christ came to the cross, they only had pictures, types, and pointing to the fact that there would be a Savior, pointing to the fact that he would indeed come to die for our sins. The revelation that they had was limited, and it was not yet revealed what they needed to know for complete revelation. That has now been revealed. The mystery has been unveiled for you and for me and for all since the time of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. That's why it tells us in verse 9, as it is written, now he's pointing back to Isaiah, chapter 64 of Isaiah. You can read these words. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, if you stop there, that kind of makes for a great message for somebody who has died and gone to heaven. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Then when you die, you go into God's presence, and you certainly do know, and you certainly do see, and you certainly do revel in the glory of God in his presence. Now that's true, but that's not the context in which Paul is using this passage. And a lot of sermons have been written on verse 9, to the exclusion of what Paul says in verse 10. So in verse 10 it says, but God, one of my favorite phrases, but God, has revealed them, past tense, they have been revealed, the mystery has been unfolded, the mystery has been uncovered, it's no longer a mystery, it's a revelation. God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So Paul is introducing here the fact that the Spirit of God has been directly involved in opening up this mystery to the revelation that we have for us in the New Testament. Now, the Spirit of God is going to play a major role in the writing of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to study uh, later on uh, a great deal of emphasis that Paul gives on the gifts of the Spirit. But here he's talking about the ability of the Holy Spirit to reveal truth. And so I want to take us back to John's Gospel and take a look with me at John chapter 14, first of all where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's telling them that he's going to go away. It's necessary that he does so. Now that troubled them greatly. But Jesus is telling his friends, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In verse 1 of chapter 14, in my father's house are many mansions and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's saying to them, I'm leaving, but I'm going to come back. Now that's wonderful news, but there's no indication to them at this time that it's going to be a very long period of time. But later on in chapter 14, he also says something of great significance to us, because he says that we also, knowing that he has gone, have another who has come in his stead. So he says, most assuredly, in verse 12, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, he's talking here about himself and the Father. But now in verse 15, he introduces the third person of the Trinity. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray my Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now that is so very, very significant for the New Testament church because we know that the Spirit of God dwells in us. When did that happen? For every believer it happened at conversion. The Spirit of God came and dwelt within the believer. And he tells us here that he is another comforter, one of the same kind, not of a different kind. The Greek word is very specific, another helper of the same kind. Alos is a Greek word. If he had used heteros, another Greek word for the word other in an English translation, it would have mean another of a different kind. And he's coming, and he's going to have a purpose in his coming. He is called the spirit of truth. And he says the world, in verse 17 of chapter 14 in John's Gospel, cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Take note of the fact that it is only the believer who is aware of the Spirit's presence in the world. It is only the believer who is aware of the fact that the Spirit is there to help the believer in his life on this earth. And so, Paul, uh, rather, Jesus is saying some very, very important things in chapter 14. And if you now turn to chapter 16 with me, you'll see also that he has more to say about the Spirit as well. Because he tells his disciples in chapter 16 the various specific works of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. In chapter 16, verse 5, Jesus is speaking and he says, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Who is a helper? Well, he tells us. But notice that it is Jesus who is sending him. That's important as well. And when he has come, verse 8 says, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So the Spirit of God has a ministry to the world. He is convicting unbelievers of sin and righteousness and judgment. That is his purpose. And all of that is so that the world might know that Jesus Christ is indeed 
the Savior of the world. It's the Holy Spirit that reveals those truths to anyone who would open their ears, open their eyes, and soften their hearts to receive the word of truth. He continues on and says, However, when he, the spirit of truth, verse 13, has come, he will guide you into all truth. So he's the spirit of truth, and he will reveal truth to the believer. He says he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the church. He teaches. He instructs. He guides. He provides. He comforts. He intercedes. The Spirit of God dwelling in each of us is so central to the ministry that Paul is talking about here of the Spirit of God with regard to Wisdom, because it is the Spirit of God who gives us that wisdom that we have available to us to believe, to receive, and to proclaim the word of truth. And it's all centered around the cross of Jesus Christ. What a marvelous statement that he's making here. God, verse 10, again in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. He goes on in verse 11 to continue that explanation by saying, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So you just can't know the things of God without the spirit of God revealing them to you. You may know yourself, you may know others, you may know uh, characteristics that each of us manifest in our lives and know something about individuals, perhaps not enough as we would like sometimes, but we know about our own selves, we know about our own weaknesses, we know about our own victories that we may have, we know about our own emotions, we know about our own character, we know about a lot about ourselves, but do you know this? The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah. Good question to ask us. I have to deal with this flesh, and so do you, with the flesh that you are presently associating your soul with. You can't eliminate that. As long as you have breath, your flesh is going to be a part of who you are. And we know that Paul tells us that there is no good thing that is in my flesh. There is no good thing. The flesh is evil. And we need to deal with it. That's why Paul says we must die daily. That's why Paul emphasizes the need to be crucified with Christ. Because when we are, it is no longer we who are alive, but Christ living in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are truths that we need to continue to emphasize daily as we continue to serve him. Because if we don't put our trust and faith in his ability to do for us what we cannot do, then we would be living a miserable life. But we have the Christ in us through his spirit. And because of that, we have the promises that are given to us in these wonderful pages of Scripture. What man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Again, verse 12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, 
and there is a spirit of the world, a wisdom of the world. There is a worldly uh, type of, or I guess you could say counterfeit of, the true godly wisdom and the spirit of God is only available to those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. None of those who have chosen to disregard the promises of God, the word of God, have rejected the salvation message. None of those can actually receive the benefit of what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives. And he says, again, in verse 12, now we have received. When did we receive? At the time that we were born again regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our spirits were quickened. We became a triune being, soul, body, and spirit. Our spirits were made alive. That's what Adam lost in the garden. He died spiritually in the garden. Not physically. His spirit died. So there was a separation from God, and that was passed on from generation to generation to every man and woman since then. But now we have that rebirth that takes place when we believe and we've been made alive, we've been quickened by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what regeneration means. That is what being born again means. When Nicodemus asked Jesus, what do you mean born again? Am I to be able to enter my mother's womb a second time? Jesus said, no, you're a teacher of Israel. Don't you know these things? He said, this is not earthly, this is spiritual. And it is now true for us who have believed. Again, verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. He makes it so that we can know these things that he has spoken to his church. By the Spirit of God, they are revealed. Then in verse 13, he says, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The Spirit of God is in us, warring against the flesh. And there is a battle going on in our bodies. We need to face that truth. Sometimes we do the things that we don't want to do. Sometimes we don't do the things that we do, do or should do. But it is the Spirit of God that convicts us of those things. And it is the Spirit of God who is wanting to bring us to that place of victory in Christ. And he can and does do that if we let him. But you know what we can also do? We can quench the Spirit of God. We can grieve the Spirit of God. May it not be so in any of our lives. Let us daily seek to be pleasing to him and to be in his perfect will as we live our lives out for his glory. And that's available to all of us because the Spirit of God dwells in us. We can because he enables us to do. These things we speak, Paul says, is not man's wisdom. Man can't understand this. It is godly wisdom. And it is only available to those who have the Spirit of God. That's why he says in verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Remember we talked about the fact that the Gentiles considered the cross to be foolishness, and the uh, Jews considered it to be a stumbling block? It was, for all of them, foolishness, because they did not have the Spirit of God in their lives to understand 
the meaning of all of what God has done. They're natural men, and in their natural bodies, their spirits are dead, they have not been quickened, and they cannot receive the things of God because these things are spiritually discerned, he tells us in verse 14. Read it again. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual, that's you and I, judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Now that word that is translated in my translation, judges, or rightly judged, is not exactly the idea of a judge sitting on a seat of judgment. That's God, and he alone has that ability to do that kind of judging. The judging here that he's talking about is really better translated examining, or in some of your translations, appraising. We are to appraise all things. We are to examine all things to see if they are lining up with the Word of God. We are to examine all things to see if it is truth or whether it is worldly wisdom that we're hearing. So this is important. We have been given the Spirit of God to enable us to know the right from the wrong, the dark from the light. All of that which the Spirit of God reveals is truth. Everything else is a lie. So verse 16 ends the chapter beautifully and it says, For we, or rather, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. He asked the question, Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Well, that's a valid question. And the answer is given. We have it already because of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We have the mind of Christ. Now, if you turn once again to the book of Philippians, we'll end with that thought. The mind of Christ. What does he mean by that? We have the mind of Christ. Yes, it is true. We do. Because we're born again. We're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have him in us to teach us all things that we need to know for life and abundant life. That's what Jesus had promised. You will have abundant life. And we do have abundant life. And in verse 1, or rather verse 5 of chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, Paul opens up to us what he means by having the mind of Christ. By saying this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Paul is saying that this is the mind of Christ. He humbled himself. He left his glory. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. The Greek word is it means emptying. Now, we don't know the fullness of what is being said here by the Apostle Paul, but it is obvious when you read this passage and you connect it with what Jesus himself said in John's Gospel in chapter 17 when he prayed to his Father, that what he emptied himself of was his ability to have the glory that he had once had with the Father. He left that behind. 
He didn't leave his power behind. He didn't leave his deity behind. But he left that glory that he had with the Father, that fellowship that he had with the Father, and so much more than we can even begin to fathom. He left behind and became a man. Like you and me, he became a human being in the likeness of men. Likeness of men because he was without sin. We are not. So there's a difference in his humanity compared to our humanity in that sense. But he suffered as you and I suffer. He knows our pain because he experienced pain. He knows the troubles that we are having because he had difficulties and troubles that he had to endure. He knows what we're facing on a daily basis. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he knows all of these things because he became a man to experience all of those things that we experience. But he went through all of that without sin. And that's the difference. And again in verse 8 he says of Philippians chapter 2, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So if we're to have the mind of Christ, we're to be like Christ in every way, willing to humble ourselves. Let no man think of himself more highly than he ought. We are to be humble. And when we do humble ourselves, if we are doing it as we should, we are mimicking what Jesus did when he humbled himself. And the ultimate end of his humility was death on the cross. Well, that doesn't sound very much like abundant life, does it? Well, if you are like Christ, it most certainly is. Because like Christ, we face the cross identifying with his death and his burial because we know that there's a resurrection coming. And we, like Christ, can endure the shame of the cross, looking forward to the glory that will be revealed to us in that day. So we must remember the cross is essential to what we believe, what we teach, what we know. And the Holy Spirit of God reminds us daily that we must die to self in order to attain that wonderful position of sanctification that he is bringing us to. It's a daily process. It is going to continue until we take our last breath. But when we do, we then will be fully sanctified. We will be redeemed. We will be glorified. And we will be able then to say, Thank you, Lord. You brought me through to this glorious wonderful eternity with you. That's what the cross allows us to do. That's why we teach the importance, the necessity of the death on the cross of our loving Savior because without it, we have nothing. But we have everything because of it. Let's remember that, my friends. And let's go in the power of that truth until he returns for us. Grace and peace.